As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father on earth, your son reminded us of your truth that it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we pray that you would feed us now with your word incarnate, our Lord Jesus Christ, and give us life in him, for we pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 1. If you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you here today. We've begun a new series on Mark. We've, this is the second sermon in the series. So you're still in early days. Um, and we're considering uh, Mark chapter 1 on page 1063 of most of the Pew Bibles, the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. And we've come to verses 9 through 13. That will be our text for this morning from Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. Uh, but to remind us of the, the context of this prologue to Mark's Gospel, we'll begin our reading at verse 1 and read through verse 13. So Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In our text this morning. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Well, storytellers always have a purpose in what they write. There's always something a storyteller is trying to communicate by way of the story, a point or a theme or something they want to convey. Uh, Mark Twain famously played on this idea in his author's note to Huckleberry Finn, When he said, persons attempting to find a motive in this narrative will be prosecuted. Persons attempting to find a moral in it will be banished. Persons attempting to find a plot in it will be shot by order of the author. Um, That's supposed to be funny. Um, It's always a sign of a good joke when you have to explain it, right? Um, But what what he does is intentionally, he was sort of tired of stories that were always preaching morals and motives and plots. And so he wanted to joke and say, this book doesn't have any of those things. And if you find them, you ought to be persecuted. Um, 
What is, but what does every storyteller really want to do? They all, they all want to accomplish something. They all want to tell a moral. They all want to tell, they always have a motive in writing. They always have a plot that they want to convey. And Mark is a storyteller. He's telling a true story, um, but he's telling a story all the same. And this prologue to Mark's gospel is so important because it contains information that we have to take with us through the rest of the narrative. If we don't understand clearly what Mark is saying at the beginning of his gospel, it'll be impossible for us to make sense of the rest of his gospel. What he says here is crucial to understanding the rest. Crucial to understanding the rest of the gospel. And so what is that crucial truth that Mark wants to convey at the very beginning of his gospel? The very beginning of this story. Um, Well, as one scholar put it, it's that Jesus Christ is none other than the very Son of God and that the Messiah has come, a Messiah who is divinely chosen. If we do not grasp from the beginning that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God who's been divinely chosen and appointed, we will be unable to understand the rest of the gospel. Because we'll find that as the narrative of Mark unfolds, Lord willing, as we go through it, um, we'll see that constantly questions are being raised about who Jesus is. People will listen to how he talks and say, who talks like this? People will see what he does and say, who is able to do this? And the question will continue to come up again and again throughout the gospel, who is this? Um, The rest of the gospel, as one commentator said, is characterized by secrecy and paradox. How can he be this and that? What is the secret solution to all of this? And Mark is telling us at the very beginning who this is, who Jesus is, so the rest of the gospel will make sense. Before all the secrecy, before all the paradox, there is an open declaration of who Jesus is. Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God. He's the one Isaiah prophesied about, the one John the Baptist spoke about. Uh, Mark begins by telling us clearly who Jesus is. He is the promised Son of God, and he's the promised Son of God who has come to renew Israel's sonship in the wilderness, as the prophets were looking for, a new beginning, a new day for the people of God to dawn. And that's what Jesus has come to do, to bring that new day for the people of God, uh, to, to bring in the kingdom. And so how do these verses help us to see that? Help us to see Jesus as the promised Son of God come to renew Israel's sonship in the wilderness. Well, we see that first in his humble submission. And secondly, we'll see it in his heavenly commission And finally, the holy mission that he's given in the wilderness. That's why we want to think about this passage together this morning. Christ's humble submission, his heavenly commission, and his holy mission. He he comes in humble submission. Um, And just as Mark introduced us to John the Baptist rather abruptly, John the Baptist appears, so also Jesus is introduced rather abruptly in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Um, He just appears on the scene. Uh, Jesus comes. The the word that 
Mark uses in Greek is a very ordinary word for someone who comes. Um, it's a very typical word to use. But it has this kind of uncommon flavor because of what John had said in verse 7. He preached saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I. After me comes one whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. And so even though it's a rather normal word, it conveys a lot of significance when Jesus is the one who comes. Uh, Jesus is the one who comes. Jesus is the one clearly that John has been looking for. The one who's mightier. The one for whom John is only doing a preparatory work, right? I will baptize with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Um, There's this great anticipation of the greatness of the one that's coming after Jesus. That's why when when Jesus comes after John and then he does what he does, it should strike us as kind of odd, as kind of strange. That when Jesus comes, what is the first thing he does? He submits to John's baptism. You'll notice that in verse 9. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And we might say that's odd. Why does the one who's mightier, why does the one who's greater, why does he submit to John's baptism? Um, other Gospels have record John having this conversation with Jesus. Why would we do that this way? Um, And so what is Mark conveying to us? What is Jesus doing by submitting to the baptism of John? He's identifying himself with his people Israel. Who were coming out to John to be baptized? It's those who were coming out in repentance. It's those who were coming out confessing their sins. And they were being baptized by John. They were being washed in the Jordan, and coming out confessing their sins. John's baptism, we're told, was particularly for repentance and remission of sins. But we know that Jesus comes with no sin. There's nothing he has to confess as the perfect son of God. There's nothing he has to repent of. There's no remission that he needs. He doesn't need to be washed symbolically or spiritually. And so if Jesus is not submitting to this baptism for himself, then for whom is he submitting to it? It's for his people. He's identifying himself with his people. And particularly identifying himself with his people in their sin. He's identifying with Israel. He's testifying that God's judgment has rightly fallen on his people for their sins. That they do need to make repentance of their sins. That they do need need to confess them. That they do need remission of sins. And Jesus comes then as a representative of his people, identifying with them in their sins. And offering that perfect repentance before God that we cannot offer. Um, It teaches us something important about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. That Jesus will stand with his people and for his people in their sin 
so they will be able to stand with Jesus in him as a new Israel, faithful and obedient to their God. Like how one commentator put it, Jesus associates himself with sinners and ranges himself in the ranks of the guilty, not to find salvation for himself, not on account of his own guilt and his flight from the approaching wrath, but because he is at one with the church and the bearer of divine mercy. He identifies with us in our sin that we might also find mercy in him. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here we have Christ coming in humble submission to identify with his people, to be ranked among the sinners. Uh, He goes down into the water identifying with sinners. He comes up out of the water with a different identification from heaven. Uh, This humble submission of our Lord Jesus Christ leads to a heavenly commission by the voice from heaven and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. He goes down identifying with his people's sins. He comes up with this heavenly declaration that that heaven is well pleased with this beloved Son. He goes down identifying with sinful people. He comes up with the Father and the Spirit identifying him with his heavenly holiness and power. That's some of the glory of verses 10 and 11. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. It puts the experience completely in the perspective of Jesus, what he saw and what he heard. And I think all of it is significant. When Mark is, Mark is the gospel where he is the most sparse with detail, so when he gives detail, it's always important. Um, it's, I think, significant that what does Jesus look up and see? He sees heaven being torn open. Other gospel writers recounting this event will say that they saw the heavens opened. But Mark wants us to know that the heavens were torn open. They might say, now what is the difference between the two things? Just gives extra ammunition for the preacher to preach on Sunday. Um, Is there real significance to this description as opposed to the other one? Well, yes, when, when the Bible does this sort of thing, when the Spirit does this sort of thing, what does He want us to do? He wants us to think. Where have we heard about heavens torn open? Is there a significance to them being torn open? And I think in this particular context, what Mark wants us to think back to is Isaiah 64. I think that's what he has in his mind. Isaiah 64, verse 1. Isaiah 64 contains one of the great laments of the book of Isaiah. When the people are really crying out to God for help. Uh, Crying out to God with a cry that, that someone called full of heartache and wistfulness. The way that we sometimes cry out to God. If you would just show up and change things. We sort of, when we are at the end of our rope, when we're at the end of our, our, our solutions, we're at the end of our strength, don't we often call that out to God? I wish you would just come down and fix it. Things are going so badly, and we're so hopeless. Would you just come down and fix things? 
You've done it before. Would you please, please just do it now? That's the kind of cry that goes up in Isaiah 64. That cry where the people are just asking, would you come down? And what do they say in Isaiah 64? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. To make your name known to your adversaries. And that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for. You came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. This is one of those those laments that just says, if only you would do something. If only you would just tear open the heavens and come down. We could just see you in power the way we saw you in power on Mount Sinai. When you tore the heavens and came down and were like fire on the mountain. If we could just see that again. When you did those awe-inspiring things that we we didn't even look for, but were, were wonderful for us. If only you would do that again. Because we know that, as Isaiah 64, 4 says, From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. That's the lament of Isaiah 64. If only you would just tear open the heavens and come down, it would change everything. All the enemies would be destroyed. All the nations that threaten us would be scattered. Your name would be known in the world. It would be known in all of its evil-destroying, awesome, transforming power. If only you would rend the heavens and come down. We've all felt that heartache as God's people. We've all had that desire to see God do it. Alec Machir put it this way, if only we too who are so often baffled by the way the Lord runs the world can identify with the spirit which wonders why he has acted in some other way. Why he has not done something to check evil, change circumstances and people, rescue his own, rather than, as it appears to us, doing nothing. Can't you just tear open the heavens and come down? If only you would do that. It would change everything. And what is Mark saying to us? Jesus saw the heavens torn open. And the Spirit coming down. Jesus is the one who changes everything. Jesus is the answer to the prayer. If you would just tear open the heavens and come down, everything would be different. And what Mark is saying is, people of God, everything is different. God has torn open the heavens. God has come down. God now is here in the flesh, the one who is needed by his people to do the very thing that they need him to do. He is here. He is here in power. The mighty one that John was looking for. He is the one who has come into the world as the messianic servant, as the deliverer of God's people. He is that begotten son that was spoken about in Psalm 2. Who would come and make the nations his heritage and who would break with a rod of iron the kingdoms that rebelled against him. He's also the servant from Isaiah 42 
who by his faithfulness will change the world. But what Mark is saying is he's the answer to the lament that God's people have been lifting up generation after generation. Where is the Lord? Where is the help we need? And the good news of Mark's gospel is he's here. He's come. The heavens have been torn. The servant has come down. To do awesome things that God's people have not looked for. Right? One of the things that they prayed for in Isaiah is just, you know, shatter the nations. Make your name known. You know, free our land. And the Lord has something better in mind. What are the awesome things he's going to do that God's people didn't even look for? He's going to triumph over sin. He's going to triumph over death. He's going to triumph over the devil. This is a salvation far beyond that which we have looked for as God's people. He will show the salvation of the God who acts for those who wait for him. In Jesus, people will no longer say, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. For the Lord has come. And the testimony from heaven is the Lord who has come is chosen and capable of doing all that heaven needs him to do. That's really what verse 11 is all about. When the voice is heard from heaven and the anointing of heaven settles on him like a dove. It's it's an expression of unqualified approval. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Someone said it's an expression of unqualified divine approval. In it, there is a recognition of Jesus' competence to fulfill the messianic task for which he has been set apart. One translator suggested this meaning. Because you are my unique son, I have chosen you for the task on which you are about to enter. And God the Father is well pleased with Christ because he is well suited to serve and to save. There's no one better That's what the voice from heaven is saying. Here is the one who will do it. There's no one better. There's no one more capable. There's no one more competent. There's no one more fitted to do this work than the Lord Jesus Christ. To come and act as the suffering servant who will destroy sin and to return in glory as the king to judge the heavens and the earth. There's no one more fit to do it. There's no one better suited. That's his heavenly commission. What a wonderful testimony Mark gives us to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the work that he will do for his people. And so then his holy mission begins. He's going to go into the world and accomplish these wonderful things. No, we have another strange thing that happens. Um, He's cast further into the wilderness Mark is reminding us in verses 12 and 13 of the important truth that the mission of the Messiah is one of conflict and suffering in his earthly ministry. Verses 12 and 13, Mark is going to do two important things for us. He's going to tell us first what happened to Jesus in those 40 days he was in the wilderness. And then Mark is going to use those 40 days to say, this is really what all of Jesus' ministry will be like. Uh, This is what happened to him in those 40 days. But really those 40 days writ large are his ministry in general. This is how we can categorize his earthly ministry writ large. Um, That's the point I think that Mark is really making in verses 12 and 13. What is Jesus' life in the wilderness really like? 
Uh, every Bible has the temptation of Jesus as the heading of these verses, but that's only a part of what happens. This is really the wilderness experience of Jesus. He's cast into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to experience this. And that's what the purpose of these verses is, to describe those 40 days and also to give us a way of thinking about the whole of Christ's ministry. That his ministry is one that's to be thought of as being done in the wilderness. He had to go out to the wilderness to see John, but now he's being cast further into the wilderness to be alone without John or any of the people going out to John. He's cast out there by the Holy Spirit. It's a very forceful kind of language Mark uses, perhaps to underline the seriousness of the coming spiritual conflict that Jesus faces. He'll be there 40 days, as Moses was 40 days on Sinai, as Elijah was 40 days in the wilderness, as those wilderness men accomplished important parts of their ministry. So now Jesus, as a wilderness man, is doing an important part of his ministry. But Mark is not just telling us that he was in the wilderness for this period of time. He's telling us that's how we're to think of his whole ministry on earth. His whole ministry on earth is one in the wilderness. Suffering that difficulty of wandering, having nowhere to lay your head. Suffering all of his life, but especially at the end for the sins of his people. And what will that time in the wilderness be characterized by? Well, first by opposition, by the temptation of the devil and the difficulties of the sin-cursed world. What happens to him while he's in the wilderness in verses 12 and 13? He's tempted by the devil. Now, our minds might immediately go to the temptations that Jesus faces that the other gospel writers tell us about, but Mark gives us none of those details. Because again, he's trying to tell us that's what happened to Jesus during those 40 days. But his whole life is going to be a life of temptation by the devil. His whole life is going to be one of Satan opposing what he's trying to do, trying to frustrate the work of God in him. It's going to be the opposition of those who are arraigned against him. He's going to be tempted by the devil. The devil will constantly oppose him. And he's going to have to suffer the difficulty of living in this sin-cursed world. That's, I think, what's being communicated by he is with the wild animals. Maybe that sounds good to you, to be out with the wild animals. That seems exciting. Um, But I think what's being pictured here is this is not a good thing, to be out with the wild animals. Throughout the, the, the Bible, anytime the blessedness of the Old Covenant was talked about, it was talked about in terms of inhabited, cultivated land. Um, talked about in terms of you'll live in in good farms and they'll yield a lot of plenty and you'll be at rest there. And the the language of curse was always, and those cultivated places will become a wilderness and will become a haunt of wild animals. And then anytime there was going to be blessing, it was the wild animals will be swept away from the wilderness and it'll become a fruitful field. Wild animals here are associated with curse, associated with the difficulty of this world of someone who's left to confront the horror, the loneliness, and the danger with which the wilderness is fraught. Um, That's what the wilderness is. It's another sign of that opposition that will be arraigned against Christ. His life and ministry will be one in the wilderness, one of opposition. 
But the good news is that's not the only story of his ministry. It's not just one of opposition, but also of support. That Jesus will be opposed by Satan, but the Spirit of God will uphold him. It's a holy mission that he's on, and the Spirit is with him. And that while the sin-cursed world may assault him, God's servants will help him. The angels come and minister to him as they provided food and drink to Elijah in his wilderness experience, so they will provide for the Lord. And this is how Mark wants to present the whole of Jesus' earthly ministry to us. As one of difficulty, as one of conflict, and one of triumph. Someone said, Mark thinks of the temptation, being with the wild animals, the service of angels, as continuous events in the course of which all the forces of God and Satan are simultaneously present. The reader who remembers this scene, when the story begins, will be able to see Jesus' conflicts and triumphs in their true light. For behind the earthly scenes in Galilee and Jerusalem lies a supernatural conflict. And we might say that sounds a lot like what the church is going through in the world today. One of difficulty, one of opposition by the devil in the world, one of conflict, one that's also being supported by the Spirit and by the angels. It might seem like in this conflict when things are going really bad, badly for the church, someone will say, I don't know if we'll make it. Um, I don't know if the church will survive this conflict. And so we have to listen very closely to the story of Mark because he says it's not just a story of conflict, it's a story of triumph. It's a story of triumph won through conflict. Because who is the one on whom this story centers? Why is it only a story of triumph and victory in the end? Because at its center is Jesus Christ the Son of God. At the center is the Mighty One, the one with whom the Father is well pleased, the Beloved Son, the Messiah and Son of God. So while the story will be one of conflict, it's a story that can only have one outcome because of who Jesus is. It can only be a story of victory in and by and for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Mighty One. And what Mark's telling us is, it was like this in his day, it will be like this in our day. The Lord Jesus will triumph. Jesus will succeed in renewing Israel's sonship in the wilderness of this world. And he will lead all of his people on a new exodus into the promised land of heaven. And he will succeed because he is the Christ, the Messiah, and none other than the very Son of God. So to Christ who by his appearing abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, how thankful we are for this story, for this story that you are giving to us of the triumph of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that Mark so clearly reveals to us Jesus' identity at the beginning of his gospel, openly declares to us that he is your son in power, Christ the Messiah, the Son of God, come into the world to save sinners. We pray, Lord, that we would be comforted by this story, 
that we would pay careful attention to the truth of victory through conflict. That our Lord Jesus Christ, through many trials and travails, has come safely into his heavenly glory and promises the same for all who follow him. And may we think about how this story relates to our story in this world where we see so much conflict and difficulty that it guarantees to us that same victory. That we who in faith follow after Christ can also be assured that just as he suffered and has come to glory, so we will, by following him through suffering, also achieve the victor's crown. So fill us with hope and comfort for the future in Christ. And fill us with faith in him, we pray, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.